0: stormy banks I stand, and cast a wishful light to Canaan's fair and happy land, where my possessions lie. By
1: 1845, members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints had had enough. For years their property had been confiscated or destroyed, they had been driven from their homes, and in a horrific act of violence their beloved prophet Joseph Smith and his brother Hiram were murdered at Carthage Jail. As bewildered members discussed what they would do now that their prophet was gone, church leaders began to implement one of Joseph's ideas in earnest. For years, Joseph had talked about moving the saints west, out of reach of the mobs and the government, out to a deserted place no one else wanted, to a land where they could finally build Zion.
0: In November of 1845,
1: Elder Orson Pratt issued the call. Brethren, awake! Be determined to get out from this evil nation by next spring. We do not want one saint to be left in the United States after that time. Most church members would travel by land in covered wagons or would pull their possessions in hand carts. But for a small group of Latter-day Saints in the Northeast, the cost of a journey by land was prohibitive. Instead, they were offered a novel choice, a trip down the eastern side of the Americas, around Cape Horn, out to what was then the Sandwich Islands, now known as Hawaii, before finally arriving in the Mexican territory of California. Interestingly, a twenty-six-year-old Samuel Brannan was chosen to head the expedition. Samuel Brannan was a publisher by trade, and after joining the church he had come to New York where he published the Mormon newspaper, The New York Messenger. Brannan had been excommunicated at one point for favoring William Smith as the new prophet after Joseph died, but was reinstated as a church member after he traveled to Nauvoo and pledged his support for Brigham Young. Brannan was a confident man with big plans and ambitions. Those qualities made him a good choice as the leader of a small, ragtag group about to undertake the longest religious pilgrimage ever recorded, a total of 24,000 miles by sea. Samuel spent all of December 1845 and January 1846 gathering passengers for the voyage and chartering a ship. The Saints booked passage on an old cargo ship named the Brooklyn. Captained by Abel Richardson, the Brooklyn was 125 feet long and 28 feet wide, had one long room below decks with a table spanning the length, backless benches for sitting, and sleeping berths bolted to the deck. It was here, in a space so small that only the children could stand upright, that seventy men, sixty eight women, and one hundred children would live for half a year. Below the living quarters in the hold, the ship carried water barrels, Samuel's printing press (effectively ending the run of the newspaper the New York Messenger), more than a year's supply of paper and ink, two cows, forty pigs, a grist mill, two sawmills, tools for eight hundred farmers, crates of chickens a 179-volume Harper's Library, glass, twine, textbooks, and many other items. Because the Saints had agreed to let Captain Richardson take cargo bound for the Sandwich Islands, they received a discounted rate of $1,200 a month, a rate which translated into a fare of $75 for adults and half that for children. Bad weather and other problems delayed the start of the voyage until February. Finally, on February 4, 1846, the Saints were ready to leave. Coincidentally, this was the same day that Latter-day Saints in Nauvoo began their pilgrimage to Zion. Imagine, if you will, the scene surrounding the New York Saints' departure. It is a wet, drizzly day. The street you are now standing on is a harbor called Old Slip, and is filled with a battered boat, which during its eleven years of service has barely survived a head-on collision with another ship. Up on the deck, the seventeen crew members are busy readying the boat to sail, and church members are waving goodbye to family, friends, and curious onlookers on the pier. Finally, the ship blows its horn three times, and a ferry named Samson pulls the Brooklyn out to sea. The first few days of the voyage went by pleasantly enough, with a very organized Samuel Brannon constantly ringing the ship's bell to tell the saints when to get up, when to eat, clean, sleep, and study. While the saints endured the cramped spaces below deck, Samuel had a comfortable room near the captain's where he, his wife, his son, and his mother in law spent their time. On the fourth day of the voyage, such a storm arose that Captain Richardson came down to the passengers and, with fear in his heart, found them loudly singing hymns to drown out the noise of the storm.
0: Oh, the Hallelujah! My
1: dear friends, he said, there is a time in every man's life when it is fitting that he should prepare to die. That time has come for us, and unless God interposes, we shall go to the bottom. I have done all in my power, but this is the worst gale I have ever known since I was master of a ship. Even though the women and children had to be lashed to their berths, and some shared the captain's misgivings, so many uttered phrases of faith and hope that the captain remarked as he left, They are either fools and fear nothing, or they know more than I do. After four days of being tossed around on the sea, the storm subsided and the ship continued its journey with the sad loss of both milk cows and, two days later, Joseph and Jerusa Nichols' small baby. Fortunately, not long after the storm, the newest member of the group was born, and appropriately named John Atlantic Burr. On March 3rd, the Brooklyn neared the equator and entered the doldrums. A triangular section of sea where northeast trade winds and southeast trade winds collide and cancel each other out. Not a breath of wind could be found, and it is recorded that the sails went limp. As the heat swelled, pitch oozed from the ship's seams. Passengers were left to smolder below decks in their cramped, suffocating room, or stand above deck where the air felt like a furnace, and in the words of one passenger they would lie panting like a lizard. After three days, the ship Brooklyn finally left the doldrums behind. In eight weeks, the Saints had already lost nine passengers, and they still faced four more months of travel. They traveled southwest, heading for Cape Horn. Cape Horn juts out at the southernmost point of South America, and before the Panama Canal, it was the only way to travel by sea around the Americas. Thirty-mile-per-hour waves, some reaching 80 to 90 feet high, proved too much for many ships, and many a crew was sent to a watery grave in this spot. Bearing this in mind, it was with much rejoicing that Captain Richardson passed Cape Horn without incident, and the ship was turned northward to finish its journey. The rejoicing was short-lived. For three months the saints had lived at sea, and vermin, including rats, lice, and cockroaches, now infested every inch of the ship, including the food. The water was so foul and slimy that it had to be skimmed between the teeth before it could be drunk. At this time, the Brooklyn was headed for Valparaiso, but when a storm drove the ship almost back to the Cape, the captain turned to the San Fernandez Islands, 360 miles off the coast of Chile. On May 4, 1846, they docked at Juan Fernandez Island. Laura Goodwin, who had slipped on a stairway and miscarried her baby, passed away and was buried on the island. Despite the sadness over Laura's death, the Saints praised God that they were touching dry land again. They bathed in clean water, washed clothes, collected fruit, and refilled their barrels with fresh water. With renewed determination and hope, three days later the Saints boarded their ship and left for the Sandwich Islands. On this leg of the journey, flying fish and porpoises provided entertainment, and a little girl was born, appropriately named Georgiana Pacific Robins. On June twentieth, the ship landed at the Honolulu Harbor. They were met by Commander Robert F. Stockton who told them that the United States was at war with Mexico. The dismayed group bought more guns, and the men practiced drills on deck while the women sewed denim uniforms. On July 31, 1846, the group finally reached their destination, a 150-person village named Yerba Buena, later to be renamed San Francisco. The Saints were anxious to know who and what awaited them. When a cannon sounded from the shore, they returned the salute with a blast from a gun. Soon a rowboat came out to meet them, and as John B. Montgomery, the officer in command, stepped onto the ship, he announced, Ladies and gentlemen, I have the honor to inform you that you are in the United States of America. The saints had mixed feelings about being back in the United States, but came ashore, and while waiting to hear where the rest of the church members had settled, established themselves in Yerba Buena and started the first English public school in the town, the first local bank, the first post office, and the first library. On January twenty-eighth, 1848, James Marshall and six Mormons discovered gold. Samuel Brannon ran through the streets with a vial of gold in his hands yelling out the news, and his newspaper spread the word to the rest of the nation. With his pronouncement, the gold rush was on. When Samuel finally heard where the main body of the saints had settled, he refused to join them. But two-thirds of the Brooklyn saints packed up their homes and joined their brethren in the Rocky Mountains, bringing with them forty thousand in badly needed American dollars. These saints of the ship Brooklyn epitomized the Mormon pioneer spirit. They left everything they owned to heed a prophet's call to gather to Zion, and endured a grueling six-month ocean voyage and the agonizing deaths of beloved friends and family members only once again to leave behind their new lives in San Francisco to be with their beloved Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. From here, at Old Slip in the city of New York, their amazing story began and continues to this day in the works and testimonies of their faithful Latter-day Saint descendants.
0: Although many of New York City's Saints left for the West on the ship Brooklyn, this was not the end of the history of the Church in New York City. As you learned earlier in the tour, the church returned to publish newspapers. New York City was always the headquarters of the Eastern States mission. Also, tens of thousands of LDS immigrants from Europe passed through here on their way to the West. In the late 1800s, many Latter-day Saints began to come to New York City to pursue education and careers. In 1919, one of the first LDS chapels east of the Mississippi since the exodus to the West Was built in Brooklyn. After World War I, many German Latter-day Saints emigrated to and stayed in New York City, which had a substantial German community among its numerous ethnic groups. This marked the first of many emigrant groups from other lands who were to come and build the church in New York City. Church growth in the early 20th century was so substantial that in 1934 the New York Stake was organized as the first stake East of the areas of pioneer settlement since the Saints left Nauvoo. Today, New York City is one of very few major urban centers to host a temple in the middle of the city. We thank you for taking our tour and hope that you will join us in anticipating the continuing growth of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in our Zion on the Hudson, New York City.